Welcome back and thanks for joining me again. So far, we have been looking at the amazing world of three manifolds and trying to understand their topology. We see this in building manifolds based on gluing polyhedra, on gluing handle bodies, these were filled in genus G surfaces, and on performing surgery on the three sphere with knots and links. We've also seen a new algebraic structure, the fundamental group used to tell manifolds apart. Well, our adventures in 3D began by studying possible topological shapes of the universe. This is what motivated us. And with this lecture, we close our three-dimensional study with once again turning to the shape of the universe. But this time, however, we are looking through the geometric lens, not a topological one. Now, as we enter the world of three-dimensional geometry, we move from Isaac Newton's ideas of geometry to that of Einstein and his theories of relativity and cosmology. Here we see that space and time are bound together by mathematical notions, and we will even consider the universe from the cutting-edge view of possible string theory. Get ready for an amazing adventure. Well, we begin with the story of Bernhard Riemann. Riemann was born in 1826 and was a mathematical genius. Riemann finishes PhD under the great Gauss at age 25 on complex analysis. Now, when he was 28 years old, just a few years afterwards, he delivered his habilitation lecture, a final test for candidates to teach at universities in Germany. Now, he delivered this lecture in front of a public audience, a panel of experts, and most importantly, in front of Gauss himself. Now, the title of Riemann's lecture was on the foundations that underlie geometry. Uh, nothing ambitious. About 3,000 years of geometry was rebuilt that day. Now, Riemann died a decade later of tuberculosis, and it took 30 years for the mathematical community to realize the power of that lecture. However, when Gauss, who was in the audience, heard it, he understood its power immediately. Gauss, who died a year later, understood that he was given a gift by Riemann to see into the far future of mathematics. So what was this lecture about? What did Riemann say that was revolutionary and stunned even the great Gauss? Well, the key notion is this. Riemann separated the topology of the space from the geometry on that space. Now, let's look back to see what people had thought before Riemann's time. Euclid built geometry based on a description of objects. We have notions such as points, lines, planes, areas, and such, since we know that these things must be like the things we're familiar with in our world. Now, in his lecture, Riemann argued that distance, the concept of distance, was more fundamental than all of Euclid's notions and must be defined independently of the space in which you live. In other words, we can be living in identical topological spaces, but can have completely different geometric experiences based on how distance is defined in each of our spaces. This notion of distance is called a metric today. So what does a metric mean? Let's look at a concrete example so we can see how different metrics can exist on the same topological space. Let's let our topological space be something we're extremely familiar with, the plane. We all know this, love this, have studied this through high school and college. 
Now we are going to put different geometries on the plane. We're going to keep the same topological plane, but put different geometries on it by giving the plane different metrics. Let's take a look. Well, the first metric we can put on the plane is the classic Euclidean metric. This is the concept of distance we know and love. So given a point on the plane A, the point x1, y1 is its coordinate, and B, x2, y2, its coordinate, the distance between the point A to B in the Euclidean plane with the normal metric we know, the Euclidean metric, is the distance formula, square root of the quantity x1 minus x2 squared plus y1 minus y2 squared. This is what we know and love. So for example, if one of your points is 2 comma 3 in the plane and another point is 6 comma 5, the distance between these two points is the square root of the difference between the x's squared, which is 4 squared, plus the difference between the y's squared, which is 2 squared. Thus, this is the square root of 20, which can be simplified to 4.472. Now visually, we can see it as just looking at this line, the distance of the line between the point 2 comma 3 and the point 6 comma 5. That's how we measure distance on the plane that we're used to. Now let's look at the exact same plane but put a different metric on it, and this metric is called the Manhattan metric. Let's take a look. Now given two points on the plane x1, y1, and x2, y2, just like before, the distance between these two points a and b is defined to be not the distance formula we know, but a new formula. The absolute value of the difference between the x's plus the absolute value of the difference between the y's. So thus, given two points 2 comma 3 and 6 comma 5 just like before, the distance under this new Manhattan metric of these two points is the difference between the x's absolute value, which becomes 4, plus the difference between the y's absolute value, which becomes 2, added together. So thus the distance is 6. Now, look, last time we had a distance of about four or something, and now we have a distance of six. The same two points on the same two topological plane have completely different distances. Now, unlike the Euclidean metric, the Manhattan metric does not measure that line that we saw before, but measures how far you travel in each of the directions. How much x directional travel do you have, and how much y directional travel do you have? It measures each of them separately and adds it together. It's an amazing thing that we have the same concept in different, the same underlying concept of topological plane in different geometric settings. So consider some consequences of changing metrics. We have kept the underlying topology, changed the geometry, and the concept of the shortest path between two points has changed. Mathematically, the shortest path between two points is called a geodesic. It's the way light would travel. Light takes the shortest path between two points. Now notice how changing the metric, the notion of distance, has radically changed how light travels. For the Euclidean metric, there is one unique geodesic. There's only one shortest distance between those two points A and B we saw on the plane. But for the Manhattan metric, it turns out there are infinitely many geodesics. For example, this one that goes across and up has distance 6. This one that goes up and across has distance 6. This one that goes across a little bit and then up and then across more has distance 6. All of these are equal distances and the shortest distances to go from one point to another. Thus, all such taxi cab routes that go across and up and across give us the same distance. This is why it's called the Manhattan metric, because it looks like the grid of Manhattan in New York City. Now, this is how the metric defines the geometry of the object. 
from the metric, we can build area, volume, curvature, and all other ge geometric notions that we're familiar with. The metric is the fundamental underlying structure. And from the perspective of geometry, the metric is everything. Euclid's powerful notions of geometry are but one example of the world that Riemann introduced that day. Now, we can place different metrics on more complicated objects other than the plane. Let's take a look. Consider the torus. Now, if we place our torus in three dimensions like you see here, then the torus can inherit or absorb the metric from the three-dimensional Euclidean space. So if I actually consider a torus in three dimensions, then notice that this meridian arc is smaller in distance to travel around than this larger longitudinal arc. These two circles are different in terms of length. And moreover, the curvature values on the outside of the torus, remember we, we talked about a positive curvature because it bends in, whereas the inside of this torus has a negative curvature. It has a saddle-like feel. That's one way we can put a metric on a torus, inheriting the concept of distance from the Euclidean three-dimensional world it's sitting in. But alternatively, we can make a torus from a square. We saw this before. We can take a square and glue the sides. But what does that mean? Let's look at a square more closely. How long does it take to go across the square? Well, it's the same as going up and down the square. That's what makes it a square. So if I build my torus from a square, geometrically giving it the same concept of distance the square has and putting it on the torus, then I see the meridian curve and the longitudinal curve, if it inherits the metric the square has, the concept of distance from the square, will become the same distance. This is remarkable. I've taken one object and have given it two separate metrics, not just the plane, but the torus itself. Moreover, the curvature at all points of this torus is zero because the curvature is also being inherited from the flat square. And the curvature of a flat square is zero. Thus, everywhere this torus Torus has zero curvature. This is why it's sometimes called the flat torus. Now we see that the first torus has a non-homogeneous geometry, whereas the second one has a homogeneous geometry. What do I mean by this? Which means that the first torus has different kinds of curvatures and links all over. If you're standing at the outside of the torus, the world feels very different than the inside of the torus. It's not homogeneous, not the same. Whereas the second torus, the flat torus, everything looks identical because the square looks identical. Well, now that we have an idea of what geometry on a shape means, let's try to understand the possible geometries of surfaces. For surfaces, we were able to obtain a classification in terms of topology. Remember, orientability, genus, and boundary components were all that were needed to talk about topology. Well, similarly, Beautifully, a geometric classification can also be done. The geometry of two dimensions is determined by an amazingly simple concept. The sum of the angles of a triangle. That's it. That's what Riemann said. But what does a triangle even mean when the concept of a line, a geodesic, has been changed completely? Well, given a metric on a surface, 
the line between two points, the shortest path between two points, that's what a line was in a Euclidean notion, has been replaced by this new word, geodesic. That's what it means to be talking about the shortest distance between two points. So instead of talking about lines on surfaces and objects, we're going to talk about geodesics. That's the new definition of line. Thus, how do we draw a triangle? It's made up of three points, and we need to connect each of those points, not by lines anymore, but by geodesics on surfaces. That's how we draw a triangle. So no matter how the metric is defined for surfaces, there are three possible kinds of geometries that we get. The first kind of geometry is the Euclidean geometry. An example is the geometry of the plane that we're familiar with. And here, the geodesics are actually the lines that we know. And the sum of the angles of the triangle is 180 degrees, classical result that we learned in high school. But we can take the, the same concept of a triangle and put it on a sphere. And this is the second kind of geometry that's available in two dimensions. It's called a spherical geometry. An example is the geometry on the sphere itself, where if you take three points and connect it with the shortest paths, now the geodesics aren't lines, but these curves, these great arcs that go through these two points. And here you can show that the sum of the angles of any triangle you draw on the curve is always greater than 180 degrees. They're, they're kind of fat in terms of its size. Now let's look at the third kind of geometry, hyperbolic geometry. It looks part of like a saddle, an example of a geometry there. Now here, if we draw uh, three points and connect them with these geodesics, we see that the sum is always less than 180 degrees. These are the only three kinds of geometries possible on surfaces. Nothing else exists other than these three kinds of geometries. Let's pause and just a, a bit, let's talk about the curvature. Now, based on the notion of a metric, one can build up tools to compute Gaussian curvature. Now, note that Gauss defined curvature in an extrinsic setting. Remember what Gauss did to create Gaussian curvature? He took your surface and he sliced it with these planes and he looked at the curvature of each of the curves of intersection and he multiplied them. You needed to have an extrinsic setting because you needed to intersect your object with planes in, an, in a greater setting. However, Riemann did a beautiful thing. He defined curvature intrinsically. He said, look, Gauss, my advisor, was a brilliant guy, but let me show you another way. He defined curvature intrinsically based on how the sums of triangles deviate from 180 degrees. If the angles are more than 180, Riemann said, we have positive curvature. If it's less than 180, he said, we have negative curvature. And if it's the same, he says, we have zero curvature. And note that drawing triangles on your surface is a purely intrinsic thing. You don't need to leave the surface to intersect it with a plane to draw it. You just draw it right on there. It's an intrinsic object. We draw it on the surface, and thus the curvature itself becomes intrinsic, coming from the metric. Now, we know that there are only three kinds of geometries in two dimensions, but an even more radical statement is possible. All surfaces of genus G can have a homogeneous geometry placed on them. In other words, every point in the surface will have the same kind of geometry around it. So for a surface of genus zero, a sphere, we will have spherical geometry. For a surface of genus one, we can place a geometry around it so it's the same at every point. And a surface of genus one is a torus and we can give it the flat torus metric that we talked about earlier. And for a surface of anything greater than one, for a two-genus uh, two surface, seven-genus surface, we can give it a homogeneous geometry of a hyperbolic structure. 
This is a beautiful result. Now, remember that Euclidean geometry has normal triangles and spherical geometry has these fat triangles and hyperbolic geometry has skinny ones. And using this, we can show that these three geometries are all that is needed to completely understand surfaces. Well, now that we have an idea about different geometries and how they interact with surfaces, let's move on to what we're really after, three-dimensional geometries. Now, this is a huge loop, excuse me, this is a huge leap to go from two dimensions to three dimensions. For two-dimensional surfaces, we had a complete topological classification, which we don't have for three dimensions. And also remember how hard three dimensions is for a simple question like the Poincaré conjecture. It can be proven easily for 2D, but took a century of powerful tools for three dimensions. Indeed, as we move from topological ideas to geometric ideas, things become much harder. And although two-dimensional geometries fall into one of these three categories, almost no one believed we can understand the world of three-dimensional geometries, except for Bill Thurston. As there are only three geometries in two dimensions, Thurston showed in the 1970s that there were only eight geometries in three dimensions. Wow! Who is this Bill Thurston? Well, we've talked about him before. Recall that Thurston was the one who gave us the elegant proof of the Poincaré-Hoff theorem with the fixed points on flows on the triangulation of the surface. Well, Bill Thurston received his PhD in 1972 under Morris Hirsch and Stephen Smale. Smale was the one who proved the Poincaré conjecture in dimensions higher than four. And Thurston then became a full professor at Princeton two years after receiving his PhD. Thurston is a geometric powerhouse. So what does it feel like to be in a world with a different geometry? Do you remember Jeff Weeks' program, Curved Spaces, which we used to explore the topological gluings of creating three manifolds? Well, beautifully, we can use the same program to feel the geometric structure as well. So here we are, we're in the three-dimensional torus. Now, it turns out the three-dimensional torus has a Euclidean three-dimensional geometric structure. It's one of the eight geometries in 3D. Notice how comfortable it feels for us to walk around here. The concept of distance is something we're familiar with. For us, in our world, it feels like our world is Euclidean. Things get farther as we walk and move around consistently. Now let's switch to the Poincaré dodecahedral sphere. Here, the geometry on this is spherical, which means that, remember, the angles are fat, and there's this concept of finiteness. You see, as we walk around this world, you feel it closing in around you. There's not enough space. You want to stretch, but, but it's packing all around you as we walk in here. This, this concept of finiteness fills us as we're in this world. Now let's look at the Seifert-Weber structure. Remember the, the, the gluing of the dodecahedron here? Here we see that there's a hyperbolic geometry that fits in this world. Notice a sense of vastness. It's like a three-dimensional saddle. It just extends on and on. It doesn't close up like a two-dimensional sphere. It just extends this vastness of a hyperbolic structure as we move in. Now, based on this stunning result by Thurston, that there are only these eight pieces of the puzzle, we can ask more. Does every three-dimensional manifold admit one of the above eight geometries? Does it have to have one of the eight possible? Well, for surfaces with topological classification in our hands, we see this is true. Every surface is one of the three geometries you need in two dimensions. But in 3D, this seems crazy. 
not having a classification, and in fact, it can sh be shown easily that this is completely wrong. Every three manifold does not have one of these eight simple geometries. Three manifolds are far more complicated than that. However, Thurston did not get discouraged and stop here. He brought out his most powerful ideas and produced the following statement called the geometrization conjecture. Now, it's a complicated statement, so bear with me as I read this. It states, all three manifolds can be cut along two-dimensional spheres and tori in a unique and natural way where each resultant piece will have one of the eight geometries. What this says is, if you take any three-manifold in the world, you can cut it up into really beautiful, simple pieces in a unique and natural way where each of the pieces must have one of the eight structures. Now, this is not just topological, but geometric. This result was so radical, so wild, so different, that unless you are a genius, you could not have even come up with it. A statement like the Poincaré conjecture is understandable, but this statement is out of this world. Now, if we can prove this, we have blown the door open in our understanding of three manifolds, not just their topology, but their geometry. And in fact, it turns out that if we can prove geometrization, we get the Poincaré conjecture for free. It's that powerful. So where do we stand in the proof of the geometric conjecture today? Well, remember Grigory Perlman and his radical proof of the Poincaré conjecture? But what I failed to mention last time is that Perlman actually proved the geometrization conjecture. The argument needed to prove the Poincaré conjecture, a part of Perlman's work, a little piece of it, has now been officially checked by mathematicians, and this is what has earned Perlman the Fields Medal. The larger argument about geometrization overall is still being reviewed by scientists as we speak today, but most believe that it is indeed correct. Now, a huge hurdle for Perlman was to make sure that the nice cuts that Thurston used are not infinite in number, but, but in other words, they work out beautifully. Well, Perlman uses the areas of soap films and the ideas in the partitioning, which we discussed in our lecture on the optimization of packings, in order to solve this problem. It all fits together beautifully. Well, we are now going to switch gears a bit. We have thus far talked about metrics and geometries in the world of three manifolds, and we are now going to see how these ideas appear in our own universe. In particular, we're going to delve into the revolutionary ideas of Einstein's theories of relativity. The first intersection of geometry with our universe comes in the form of Einstein's special relativity. James Maxwell, the great theoretical physicist, showed that light always travels at a fixed speed, about 300 million meters per second. Moreover, light never is at rest. But, but according to Isaac Newton's theory of motion, we say, what happens when we travel as fast as light and catch up with light? It would seem that to us, light will be completely at rest. We can actually look at what stopped light looks like and understand it. But, but since light is never at rest from Maxwell's perspective, we have a paradox. Well, in 1905, Einstein stunned the world with his answer to this paradox. It involves a rethinking of the meaning of time itself. Einstein claimed that everything moves in relation to other things. In particular, light speed is indeed fixed, and all other speeds are relative to light. This is why it's called the theory of special relativity. Indeed, there's nothing called absolute time. Each person has their own personal time. And as we move closer to the speed of light, 
time itself slows down from our perspective. With this one beautiful idea, Einstein forever destroyed the notion of absolute rest and absolute time. So for us, what are the geometric consequences for our world? Well, we can no longer separate space and time as two distinct spaces. There's nothing called space and time separately, but one unified shape called space-time. Now, if we imagine our universe to be a circle, which it's not, but imagine it, if we imagine it to be a circle, the classical notion is that space and time will be topologically a circle times the timeline or an interval, a circle times an interval, which gives us a cylinder which we have a clear product structure here. However, in actuality, the topology of space-time is more like something like a genus three surface, something that's not a product structure at all, but, but where we cannot separate the timepiece from the space piece. If you have the cylinder, it's easy to see where the timepiece is. But, but this genus three surface has, has no concept of where time and space is. It's beautifully meshed in together. And this is what Einstein tries to say. Our world is not the world of space and time separately with the product structure, but one unified space-time world. Now, there's only one main problem with Einstein's theory of special relativity. It didn't work well with Newton's idea of gravity. You see, Newton claimed that everything exerts gravity on everything else, where the gravitational force is related to its mass. So the more mass an object has, the more gravitational pull it has. So something like the sun, which is enormous, has an enormous gravitational pull to it. But what would happen if, for example, the sun immediately disappeared? According to Newton, the disappearance of the sun would be felt instantaneously on the earth. If the sun was missing, there's nothing pulling the earth towards it, and the earth would immediately feel this gravitational lack of pull. But according to special relativity, everything, including information about the sun's disappearance, everything is restricted and cannot travel faster than the speed of light. There's nothing called instantaneous. Only the speed of light is the fastest anything can go. So how do we solve this dilemma? Well, Einstein solved this dilemma in 1915 with his theory of general relativity. Einstein noted that while light focused on speed, Gravity is based on acceleration. Now, consider an elevator. If, if it is moving at a constant speed, you feel like it's not moving at all. Only when it accelerates or decelerates do you actually feel its pull. And Einstein claimed that this pull is what gravity is about. Now, Einstein realized that the geometry of space-time is not a Euclidean flat geometry that, that we know, but a curved one. Remember Riemann assumed that space can be curved? He came up with this beautiful generalization of Gauss's work. But Einstein realized that space-time itself is curved. Now, without going into detail, I will say that Einstein showed that the time component of space-time is negatively curved. Wow. Now, the machinery of mathematics used in a stunning way changed the world forever. Now, general relativity also explained gravity in a beautiful way, again using the power of mathematics. Einstein showed that the mass of an object causes a curvature in space-time, which then causes a gravitational pull. Let's take a step back and look at this example. Consider a trampoline. Now, if you put 
a tennis ball in the middle of a trampoline, the mass of the tennis ball is going to cause the trampoline to curve just a bit. Now, if you put a bowling ball in the middle of a trampoline, it's going to cause the trampoline to curve far more. You see, the mass of the object causes curvature around it. Now, this is just a two-dimensional example. Our mass, here in three dimensions, exerts a three-dimensional curvature of space-time around us. Since I actually have mass, I am exerting a curvature all around me. And the sun, with its intense mass, is exerting a three-dimensional trampoline-like curvature all around it. And it is this curvature that's being, that's being pushed and defined by space-time itself that gives us the concept of gravity. The desire for one ball in my trampoline to roll towards another one in this curved space is what gravity is all about. Einstein's beautiful work of relating mathematical concept of curvature with gravity itself. So what are the consequences of general relativity? Well, if you remove a ball from the trampoline, it turns out if you actually remove a bowling ball from a trampoline, it doesn't instantaneously snap to place. It takes time. Now, it, take, it does it quite fast, but in general, it takes time for the trampoline to come back to its original shape. And Einstein said that gravitational information does not travel instantaneously, just like removing the ball doesn't make it instantaneously come back. But gravitational information indeed travels at the speed of light. This resolves the dilemma with the Newtonian way of thinking about it. So all the great paradoxes seem to be solved. Space and time have been joined together to form a new four-manifold, three dimensions of space and one dimension of time called space-time. And gravity itself has been, has been given meaning coming from the geometric concept of the curvature of space-time, topology of space-time, and geometry of space-time. Well, even with all these beautiful results, a great problem still exists in physics today. And this is the problem of scale. You see, the reign and rule of gravity is in the macro. Gravity works with the big, right? With masses of suns and planets and solar systems. But even today, physicists and mathematicians cannot make the quantum world of electrons and quarks, the thing of the small, the micro, work with the thing of the big, work with gravity. Thus, today, we have two separate sets of equations, one for the quantum mechanical micro world of quarks and one for the gravitational macro world. Now, unfortunately, there are objects that exist today which require both of these things, like black holes. Now, a black hole is a star which has been compressed, crushed. It's like, it's like taking a sun and crushing it to the size of a house. It is so heavy and concentrated that the warping of space-time stretches that so much, it even pulls light into it. In black holes, we have the two worlds of macro and micro collide. Now, Einstein's dream was always to get the grand unified theory of making macro and micro work out, but he failed. Now, the quest for finding a grand unified theory continues today, and it's the dream of all scientists to do this. Well, we have seen beautiful things today. We started out by understanding the revolution of Riemann, separating topology from geometry, with the introduction of the metric. This led to a classification of two-dimensional geometries and Thurston's stunning geometrization conjecture and the understanding of three-dimensional geometries. These ideas were then woven into Einstein's notions of special and general relativity. In our next lecture, we venture into the world of higher dimensions and wonders and show a possible answer to Einstein's grand unification theory. Stay tuned.